This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Gay Strathern to talk about the place of the cross in LDS culture and theology. Gay Strathern is an associate professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture and in the Ancient Near East Studies program at BYU. Dr. Strathern received her Ph.D. in religion, concentrating on the New Testament, from the Claremont Graduate University. Her research centers primarily on New Testament topics, especially those of interest to Latter-day Saints. It's her chapter, Christ's Crucifixion, from With Healing in His Wings, that we will be discussing today. This is from an address originally given at the annual BYU Easter Conference. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Gay, you have a lovely accent. Tell us a little bit about your background. I'm from Australia, Brisbane. I grew up in a place called Redcliffe in a very, very small branch of the church, small even by Australian standards. My first degree was in physical therapy and I practiced for a number of years in Australia there. And then I came to BYU in 1989 as a student. You can hardly imagine what it was like for someone coming from such a small branch of the church to come to the heartland and the excitement of going to my first ever devotional with thousands of people coming with me and the Carillion Bells playing Come Come Ye Saints. It was magic for me. I really loved that. You can imagine, though, it was a little bit of a shock after I'd been here almost a year. And uh, Good Friday came and went, and it was like it was nothing, right? Nothing changed at BYU. We still had classes. Everything was the same, and that was such a stark cultural change for me where Good Friday was one of the seminal Christian holidays. To come here and it be nothing was a little bit of a shock. You grew up Mormon. Did you celebrate Good Friday? As a Mormon, there were no services in Australia like there aren't here. But there was a sense, even in a very traditionally not very religious country like Australia, but there was a sense that this was sacred time. In some ways, it's kind of like the Jews think of Sabbath. Sabbaths aren't always just the seventh day. It's any sacred holy time. And even in Australia, that was the case. Nobody went to work on this day. And that, more than anything else, said this was something different. It's not that we did much. We had hot cross buns, and that was very, very exciting. We loved to do that. But it was a time that we knew that this day was different from the day before. And so we did talk about what Good Friday was about. We did talk about it as the time when Christ was crucified and how important that was in terms of the Easter season, that it was the beginning of the Easter season. For us, Easter wasn't just Easter Sunday. Easter was Good Friday through the resurrection. The title of your chapter is Christ's Crucifixion, the Reclamation of the Cross. You put two disclaimers right up front. You say, 
You won't be talking about what happened in Gethsemane, though you recognize it as a seminal event. Absolutely. And you are not arguing to put crosses on our buildings. Because that is not my place in any way, shape, or form. Why do you think we need to put a bit more of our attention on the instrument of Jesus' death, the cross? Well, I think primarily it's because it's a part of the atonement. And even though it's not a part that we talk about very much, if we're looking in our scriptures, both the Bible but also our restoration scripture, that's a very, very important part of the redemption and the reconciliation that comes because of what Christ did for us as sinners. And I think that that gets lost in the discussion sometimes, but the scriptures are very strong. And it's not just a biblical thing. The point I want to make here, it's, it's all throughout the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. But I think we skip over those things sometimes. To first century Jew, or probably to any citizen of the Roman Empire, they knew all too well what crucifixion was. But fortunately, we don't. Tell us a little bit about what it meant to be crucified in New Testament times. Crucifixion generally is defined as execution by suspension. It was a horrific death. Josephus talks about it as being a most pitiable death, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And sometimes I think we miss that because most of our artwork is pretty sanitized in depicting the crucifixion. It was so horrific that even though we have a number of ancient texts mentioning crucifixion, very rarely do they describe how it was done or what was done. We get little bits and snippets here and there throughout the text from which we can put together something of a picture of it, but they don't want to talk about it because it's so gruesome. And in fact, Cicero is going to say that upper-class Romans shouldn't even know anything about crucifixion. They shouldn't see it, they shouldn't hear it, they shouldn't think about it because that's just something that shouldn't happen. Many ancient groups, including the Romans and the Jews, used crucifixion as a form of capital punishment. But crucifixion covered a wide range of practices. Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher from in the first century, wrote, quote, "'Yonder I see crosses,' Not indeed a single kind, but differently contrived by different peoples. Usually Christians have a set view of what a crucifixion looks like, but sometimes the cross was in the form of what we would see as a capital T, um, where the crossbar was at the top of the vertical. Sometimes it was like a little T, and that's the one I think that we're most familiar with. It's called the Latin cross. Generally, the victims were crucified while they were alive, but we have some records of them being crucified after they had died. Sometimes they're even crucified upside down. And for Christians, that's important because we hear about that happening for Peter, but that's also known with other people. Both Josephus and Seneca talk about people being crucified upside down. And at least one place we know that the practice of crucifixion was closely regulated. We've got some texts from a place in Italy which talks about you know, how you do crucifixion and how you get the person to it, and so it was very, very regulated. 
Um, it was used for a variety of crimes that include arson, desertion, disobedience, piracy, theft or murder. But Josephus emphasises that in Roman Palestine, the most frequent reason was political rebellion. And we have some experiences where he talks about people being crucified because of rebellion. I want to read just one other thing from Seneca, um, and he's also describing this, how horrific this death is. And this is what he says. Tell me, is death so wretched as that, talking about crucifixion? He asks for the climax of suffering. And what does he gain thereby? Merely the boon of a longer existence? But what sort of life is lingering death? Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop, rather than expiring all at once? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumours on chest and shoulders, and draw the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? I think he would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross. Right? That gives us a sense of what people were thinking about it. I mentioned that Roman citizens, um, they didn't even want to talk about it, and generally they weren't executed, although some were, but we're going to find that Cicero and Suetonius are going to be very, very critical of that practice. But the opposite is true for the slaves, for criminals or even foreigners. And we get a sense of this from a Roman playwright, his name's Plautus, where he talks about a slave in one of his plays, and this slave declares, quote, I know that the cross will be my tomb. There my ancestors have been laid to rest, my father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather, close quote. So from a slave's perspective, this is the expected way that they're going to die. Um, and I think that that's really quite horrific. Yeah, right? it is. What was the goal of execution through crucifixion? Such a brutal way to kill someone. Well, I think that there's two major ones. The first of is that it was a way to torture people, right? As we've seen from some of those quotes. And the torture could be extended for long periods of time. It was humiliating. And its public nature served as a deterrent for others. Quintilian, for example, he's a Roman rhetorician in the first century, Wrote, when we crucify criminals, the most frequented roads are chosen, where the greatest number of people can look and be seized by fear. It was so humiliating, but it was also very public to try and deter other people from committing the crimes. You mentioned that the Romans didn't want to talk or write about crucifixion, and actually the New Testament has the most detailed description yep of what a crucifixion was. How is Jesus's crucifixion presented in the Gospels? The Gospels all have their unique aspects of it that they tell that no other Gospel does. But there's some basic things that are kind of, that we come, and when we put all of them together, you're absolutely right. It's about the most detailed account that we have. You're going to get things like that there's going to be a scourging that Jesus is scourged before he even gets to the cross. We know that the Romans introduced that, and so that's accurate. Um, we have John mentioning that Jesus is forced to carry his cross, although the synoptics are going to talk about how Simon of Cyrene is 
made to do that for him. When they talk about carrying the cross, what we're probably talking about is the patabellum, which is the horizontal part of the cross. We have a number of Roman texts that talk about that. Again, it's part of the humiliation. Some descriptions talk about there's floggers and people with whips and, and sticks pushing the person along so that they keep going. And, and then when they get to the place of execution, there is a vertical pole already in place. This way it can be reused, right? And then they're carried up onto the cross. So that aspect of the Gospels we know from other places. When it comes to how the person was fixed to the cross, it's really ambiguous in a lot of the early texts. And frankly, even in the New Testament accounts, nowhere in the New Testament accounts of the actual crucifixion does it say that Jesus was nailed to the cross, although we assume that because Thomas, when the resurrection, talks about the nail marks. But sometimes they were tied to the cross. It wasn't nailed. Sometimes they're nailed and tied, but mostly they're nailed. And we see that a number of places. So that's coming through. They talk about how Jesus is between two thieves. That's not unusual that we're having other people being crucified. Some things talk about thousands of people being crucified at any one time. And that the fact that he died quickly was very, very unusual, right? Because it's meant to be carried out over days and things like that. The fact that they brought him down and wanted him to be taken from the cross before the end of the day is not just that the Sabbath was coming. There are some texts that also talk about before nightfall comes that people should be taken down from crucifixion. The fact that they wanted to break Jesus' legs, which we have in the Gospel accounts, we have plenty of accounts of Romans using that as a form of torture, breaking their legs, but we just don't have them associated with crucifixion. And in some ways, that might be detrimental to what the Romans are doing because that would cut down the amount of time for the torture and things like that. Is the crucifixion depicted differently in Acts? Yes. The Gospels mainly are interested in talking about what happened. They're not interested in talking about the reason for it or the theological significance and things like that. In Acts, we find, and I think the important part here is, in Acts chapter 2 in particular, we get Peter and John as they're beginning their missionary work and we find that the crucifixion is at the heart of the message that they're teaching. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verses 23, Peter is at Pentecost. And notice he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And then verse 23, it says, "...him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain." So that becomes an important part. And then if we go over to verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And if we go over to chapter 4, verse 10, where Peter and John have been arrested, notice what it says here. Be it known unto you all and to all of the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God hath raised from the dead. So crucifixion becomes a central part of the earliest sermons that we have of these missionaries as they're going out and teaching about Jesus. It's very much centered on the crucifixion. 
And Paul wrote about the crucifixion as well, right? He gave us more detail on yeah. why the crucifixion. Yeah. Yeah, Paul is really the one who kind of, and I say this with the utmost respect, but massages the the message of Jesus and how it's going to be taken to the Gentiles, right? And so he has some really important passages. And notice again how important it is for Paul that he's carrying on but extending what Peter and John have done. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes down to verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews it's a stumbling block and unto the Greeks it's foolishness. But that's the heart and center of our message. So then in chapter 2, then verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this becomes his message in so many ways. Even more so, I think, at the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, Paul says this in verses 3 and 4, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I received. Now, I think the translation here could be stronger. Where it says, first of all, en protois, it means the most important things. For I delivered unto you the most important things which I received. And what were those most important things? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So for Paul, doctrinally speaking, the two most important doctrines that I can teach that are inseparably connected are the crucifixion, and in some ways it's the crucifixion here that he's using as the example of the atonement, and the resurrection. Then he goes on and he talks about what the crucifixion has meant for him as somebody who's converted to Christianity. He talks about his transformation. So to the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's now having this intimate connection with the crucifixion. It's not something that's outside. It's something that has become a part of him. He therefore glories the cross. And also in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Being crucified with Christ enables that, he says in Romans, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And then I love this in Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. For if we, when we were enemies, were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, right? reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through the Lord Jesus, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, the thing that I want us to know here, it doesn't come out in the English very well, but verse 11 here is the only place in the New Testament, at least the King James Version, where we have this word atonement. But the Greek word here is katalage, which means to be reconciled. It's exactly the same word used in verse 10, although they choose to translate it differently there. So what we could say or read this and understand, for if we, when we're enemies, 
we were reconciled, or through the atonement of God, by the death of his son. Paul is linking what we have in terms of atonement with the death, the crucifixion of the Saviour. And I think that that's really important in this discussion. You mentioned earlier that Paul said that the crucifixion was a stumbling block for the Jews in accepting Christ. Why would it have been a stumbling block? Well, we've already talked about how humiliating this was. Paul in Galatians is going to talk about, quoting Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And I think that that was a fairly well-known or accepted understanding of crucifixion. Certainly for the Jews, we have it in Deuteronomy. We also find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're going to see Roman writers are going to go out there and they're going, Christians, you're worshipping somebody who was crucified? That is craziness, absolutely craziness. Right, Because this is a criminal, this is the outcast, this is why on earth would you worship? It was so different from the depiction of, of some of their gods. So we have some examples here of some of these early writers that may be behind what Paul is saying elsewhere in Galatians chapter 5. He talks about the scandal of the cross. The King James translates it as the offense of the cross, but it's the word scandal. So for example, a second century cynic philosopher by the name of Lucian He once lived amongst the Christians in Palestine, and he later wrote a satire where he's really mocking them. And this is what he says about them. Christians who have, quote, sinned by denying the Greek gods and by worshipping that crucified sophist himself and living according to his laws. Right. This is really tongue in cheek. This is craziness that they would do that. He further says Jesus was a man, quote, whom they still worship. The man who was crucified in Palestine for introducing this new cult to the world. So for them, it's craziness. Another second century writer, Justin Martyr, he's a Christian apologist. He acknowledged that people thought it was crazy. And he says, it is for this that they charge us with madness, these Gentiles, saying that we give the second place after the unchanging and ever existing God and begetter of all things to a crucified man. How can you even... Put those two of those together. Again, it's craziness. The second or third century, Minucius Felix's Octavius tells of a pagan retort against Christians. To say that a malefactor is put to death for his crimes and wood of death dealing cross are objects of their veneration is to assign fitting altars to abandoned wretches and the kind of worship that they deserve. Now, all of these are later. They're not first century But I think that they kind of give us a sense of the general thought of what it meant for people to say, and for Paul to say, you guys think it's foolishness, but for us, it is the power of God. Paul is turning crucifixion upside down as he puts that as part of his missionary message. You mentioned in Christianity, Good Friday is seen as the holiest of religious days. And when you came to BYU, you felt like the LDS culture celebrated it not at all. In fact, it was a non-event. In your chapter, you argue that the cross should hold an important place in our public and private discourse, both among ourselves and in conjunction with our Christian friends. You remind us that Jesus' experience on the cross is part of the atonement, but sometimes we tend to put more emphasis on Gethsemane. Tell me about that. Okay. Now, again, I want to 
be very clear that I'm not trying to devalue Gethsemane in any way. It is uh, a seminal part of Jesus' atonement. And we certainly see that in some places, right? So we're having Mosiah chapter 3, verse 6, talks about Jesus bleeding from every poor in the Book of Mormon. And that's an important part. We have Doctrine and Covenants 19, 18, also talking about the bleeding at every poor. We also have 3rd Nephi 19, talking about Jesus' experience on day two of his ministry, is using very much Gethsemane type of language. But the prophet Joseph talked about the cross and its important part of the atonement. And it's probably historically, I think, uh, according to Bob Millett's research, it's probably Joseph Fielding Smith who's the first person really who is going to emphasise Gethsemane in a way that he's trying to emphasise how Latter-day Saints are different from other Christians. Rather than emphasising the things that we have in common, he's saying, okay, but this is what we do differently because Gethsemane is important to us. With that in mind, and I think we've taken and continued that tradition from Joseph Fielding Smith to today. But I think that there are changes. I think we have Elder Holland, Elder Maxwell are talking about the importance of the cross as part of atoning sacrifice as well. I think that there's a little bit of a shift to see the completeness of the atoning sacrifice rather than emphasizing just one. I thought it was interesting that you said that Elder McConkie was one of the brethren who really emphasized Gethsemane, but in other places he also made a parallel to the cross where the suffering that Christ suffered in Gethsemane was carried over to the cross. The Book of Mormon actually has a bit of language about the cross and the role it played in the atonement as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. And this is one of the things that I'm wanting to emphasize here, that this is an important concept in our Restoration Scripture. There are a number of places, but the Book of Mormon is, again, is going to have some Gethsemane experiences and talk about that. But many times it, they're going to talk about the sufferings and death In some of the greatest atonement sermons there, they talk about the sufferings and the death. Let me kind of just come through a few of them. We're not going to do all of them, but let's just pick up a few. Alma 22, verse 14. And since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself, but the sufferings and death of Christ atoned for their sins. Both of them are doing it and talking it in the language of atonement. Um, another one, which is might be a little bit crazy, but this is Alma 30, and this is Corihor who's teaching, but Corihor is telling us something about what the Nephites are teaching. And so in verse 26, but ye also say that Christ shall come, but behold, I say and that you do not know that there shall be a Christ, and ye say also that he shall be slain for the sins of the world. Right? The crucifixion is for the sins of the world. He's done that to help redeem us from those sins. You give us another reason that we should emphasize the cross. It comes from a unique passage in 3 Nephi 27, where Jesus talks about us being lifted up as he was lifted up. I've read this before, but not tied it to being lifted up on the cross. 
Christ, in fact, describes the gospel and the atonement in terms of the cross. Can you explain that connection? I think it's really important, the context here. So as you've said here, he's talking about his gospel. And this is something we don't get in the biblical record. The word gospel is used a lot, but it's not defined in such a way. That happens here in Third Nephi 27. The thing that jumps out to me is, my father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. God sent Jesus to be lifted up on the cross, to be crucified. This wasn't plan B. This wasn't just a footnote to the atonement. God sent him to do this. I think that that's important. And the reason that he sent him, that I might draw all men unto me, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father to stand before me and to be judged of their works, whether they be good or evil. So as he's describing the good news of what his mission is all about, he's saying, I was crucified to enable each of you to be lifted up, not necessarily, I think, on a cross, but be lifted up to the Father, this idea of being lifted up, so that you will be judged by God. Now, sometimes I think we think of the judgment as something scary or negative, or this is where we're going to be beaten with a few stripes or something like Isaiah says. But in God's plan, his hope is the judgment will be the means for him to look us in the eyes, to encircle us in the arms of his love, and call us by name and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. Judgment is supposed to be a time of rejoicing that we have accomplished what the Father wanted for us. He didn't send us here to fail. He sent us here to have the opportunity to step up to the plate and show that we belong in his presence and that we choose that in a world of choices. And so his hope is that Christ is crucified so that we can stand before the judgment, so that we can enter into the presence of God. And then the rest of this description here about the gospel is talking about ways that 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 can happen. If we have faith, repentance, we're baptized, we receive the Holy Ghost, we're sanctified, we endure to the end, all of that will make that this judgment to be a really, really positive thing. And so we see a similar thing in the New Testament in John chapter 3 where Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, and clearly Nicodemus is one of these people in John's gospel who just doesn't quite get what Jesus is saying. But notice verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, referring back to the experience in Numbers 21, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that raising of the serpent on a pole, and if everybody looked to it, they would live. Jesus is saying, this was to teach about me. It was a type of my experience of being lifted up on the cross. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And it's in that context, then, that we have these most famous of verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Moses told the Israelites, look to God and live. And John is reiterating that God loved us so much that he allowed his son to be crucified. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to take advantage of that? Or are we going to say, oh, that's silly. No way can that happen. But this is evidence of his love, right? I think the same principle is taught again 
in First Nephi chapter 11, when Nephi is being shown the tree of life, we know that we're told that that represents the love of God. And then the rest of the chapter talks about Nephi sees in vision snippets, snapshots of Jesus' mortal life that's evidence of God's love. And so we see things like John the Baptist coming, or we see the love of the mother of Mary and being emphasized there. We see Jesus being baptized. We see him doing miracles as evidence of his love, etc., etc. But then let's go to verse 32 and 33 of this. And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me again, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld the Lamb of God, that he was taken by the people, Yea, the Son of the everlasting God was judged of the world, and I saw and bear record. And I, Nephi, saw that he was lifted up on the cross and slain. Why? For the sins of the world. This is the Christ's atonement snippet that he's seeing. But it's put in the context of the great love that God has. So the crucifixion is not the negative thing that we think of and we see from historically. Again, this has been turned upside down. The crucifixion is evidence of God's love for his people. I think that that's a wonderful concept that we should all rejoice in, right? Yeah. Not, not, not slip over. <laughs> I love that clarification that lifted up could be a synonym for salvation. Yes. You also suggested that the image of the cross is an invitation to discipleship. The phrase, take up your cross, was familiar to me, but you included some points I'd not considered before, especially about how early the cross was used as a symbol by Christians. Can you explain more of this connection between discipleship and the cross? Frankly, there is some discussion discussion and debate amongst scholarship of when the cross becomes a physical symbol for Christianity. And most scholars, but not all, but most scholars would argue that the cross as a physical symbol doesn't come about until Constantine in the fourth century. And that may be the case. But what I'm arguing is that the cross in the New Testament very early on with Jesus himself, is talking about this idea as the cross being a symbol of discipleship. Let's look at a couple of places where I think that this is happening. In Matthew 16, we have this very, very famous passage with Jesus, with Peter, and Jesus asking Peter who he is, and thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, etc., etc., what follows after that in verses 21 through 24 are very interesting to me in this context. So it reads this way. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things of the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Peter, as we all remember, didn't want that to happen. He took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, for this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offence unto me, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, and particularly in Matthew, but that language of come follow me, come unto me, that's the language of the invitation to discipleship. And although the word disciple isn't used, that's like clockwork. That's what it means in Matthew's gospel. So if any man will come after me, if any man will be my disciple, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we've got this connection that Jesus is making between cross and discipleship. Luke has it a little bit differently. In Luke 9.23, Luke's going to have Jesus saying, and take up your cross daily and follow me. Right? So what does that mean to take up the cross? They're kind of using this Greek word, apaneomai, and the sense here is to take up your cross is the breaking of every link that ties a person to anything else, even themselves, right? So divorcing yourself from the world and coming and following me. And so we get these passages also that talk about Matthew ten thirty eight. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Luke says it even more poignantly, I think. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, doth not bear his cross and be a disciple, cannot, cannot be my disciple. Udunatai. It's not possible to be a disciple unless you pick up this cross. So it's already being used very, very symbolically in terms of this association with discipleship. So if I think about that in terms of Paul, and his idea is he kind of puts this into practice and sees this going on. There's a couple of passages. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me or important to me once upon a time, those things I've counted loss for Christ. And then if we go down to verse 10, Paul's desire is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. For him and being disciple, what he's saying here, just as Christ was crucified and is willing to die for me, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I'm going to be willing to die for him, and whatever that means. Then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet... Not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's this transformation that has taken place in Paul. Crucifixion for Paul wasn't something that meant death. Crucifixion was something that meant new life. And I'm living a new life now because of Christ's crucifixion. And then Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Again, that idea that I've put across, put away the things that were once so important to my sense of um, well-being or identity. Those don't mean nothing now because I'm a new man because I've been crucified with Christ. I think that's an amazing concept for us to think about. I love that imagery of taking up the cross, how it shows we're willing to deny ourselves and submit our will to the Lord. You remind us that Jesus maintains the signs of his crucifixion in his resurrected body to show how important that experience was. Growing up, one reason I heard repeated for not discussing the cross is that we celebrate Jesus's life, not his death. How can that thinking be redirected 
to be more in line with what we see modeled in the scriptures that you just read? Well, again, I want to re-emphasize that I believe the resurrection is fundamentally important to our doctrine, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm devaluating. But having said that, I think it's really important to remember that there would have been no resurrection without the crucifixion. And so to understand and appreciate what the resurrection is, we've got to appreciate what the the crucifixion is. And remember we talked about, I read from 1 Corinthians 15, the two most important doctrines that he taught were crucifixion and resurrection. I think that this is perhaps most beautifully taught in the Book of Mormon, in 3 Nephi chapter 11. We all know the story that this is where Jesus comes. This is day one of the beginning of his ministry amongst the more righteous of the Nephites and Lamanites of the time. Now, do you remember the story? They're all, all of the destruction that has gone on. And they've kind of now kind of gathered together at the temple. They're talking about all the things that have happened. And then they hear this voice from heaven. They hear it. They don't, I'm not sure that initially they hear the words. They just hear something. And then it's repeated and repeated a third time until they're listening intently enough that they hear the words of, this is my beloved son in whom I'm, right? But they still think it's an angel, right? They haven't quite clued in who it is. And so in verse 10, when Jesus comes, he declares, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. Behold, I am the light and the life of the world, and I have drunk out of the bitter cup which the Father hath given me. And he goes on, and in verse 12, and it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, the whole multitude fell to the earth. Now, this is them, I would suggest, recognizing now that this isn't an angel. This is Jesus himself. And the falling to the earth is an ancient way of responding to being in the presence of deity, right? So they don't do that when they hear it. They do it now when he says this. And then Jesus says to them in verse 14, Arise and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain, why? For the sins of the world. So here we have this pretty amazing situation. Jesus comes as a resurrected being. And for Latter-day Saints, what does it mean to be resurrected? Well, you're going to have your perfect body back. Well, he has a perfect glorified body, except that he also has the marks of the crucifixion. And it seems to me that he keeps them intentionally, as prophesied by Zechariah. But this becomes the proof to them, the tangible proof that he is the Son of God who was slain for their sins. So we have resurrection and crucifixion, the two most important doctrines that Paul taught. But here in 3 Nephi, we have them together as the Savior comes. And notice how the people respond to him. We know, well, we know that they all came forward one by one to do what? Specifically to touch and feel and to have their own personal 
testimony of the crucifixion, and then what happens? And they did know of a surety and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. And when they had all gone forth and had witnessed for themselves, they did cry out with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. That's powerful. That is. What reasons can we find to rejoice in the signs of the crucifixion? Well, I think another one that I would like to include, in addition to what we've been talking about, is something that Elder Holland taught. And this has caused me to reflect a lot. And I think that's important for every single one of us. Elder Holland says, When we stagger or stumble, the signs and the marks of Jesus' crucifixion is a reminder that he is there to steady and strengthen us. In the end, he is there to save us. And for all of this, he gave his life. However dim our days may seem, they have been a lot darker for the Saviour of the world. As a reminder of those days, Jesus has chosen, even in a resurrected, otherwise perfect body, to retain for the benefit of his disciples the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. Signs, if you will, that painful things happen even to the pure and perfect. Signs, if you will that pain in this world is not evidence that God doesn't love you. Signs, if you will, that problems pass and happiness can be ours. It is the wounded Christ who is the captain of our souls. He who yet bears the scars of our forgiveness, the lesions of his love and humility, the torn flesh of obedience and sacrifice. These wounds are the principal way we are to recognize him when he comes. What do you hope that people reading your chapter will do or think about differently in regards to the crucifixion and especially Good Friday? Well, I think that there's two things. Number one, I hope that Good Friday won't be just another day to them, that they'll take time to think about what happened on that day and why it should be celebrated. We're not going to go to church like other Christians, but that doesn't mean individually and in our families we shouldn't take the time to celebrate what happened on that day. The second thing is I hope that as we're preparing our talks and preparing our Sunday school lessons or any of the lessons that we teach, that whenever we're talking about Jesus' atoning sacrifice, that we don't skip over those passages biblically and restorationally, that talk about the crucifixion as an important element in that atoning sacrifice. Thank you, Gay. It's been wonderful visiting with you today. We appreciate you sharing your scholarship with us. Thanks for having me. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.